Happy Wednesday, everybody. Yay. Hello, guys. Welcome to Mommy Group. We're so glad that you're here. We have a fantastic episode today. It's super powerful, super inspiring. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You guys, listen to this episode, share it with a friend. You're gonna love it. Without further ado, let's get started. We are so excited about this episode. So this is, we're recording this in kind of an unusual way for Mommy Group. This is a little bit of a different process for us, but it is so powerful because we're gonna be able to share stories and insights and tips from people that we couldn't necessarily all get in one room at the same time. So it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It is October. This is a big month, super important for women, super important for breast cancer awareness. And we were able to get together women who are sharing their personal stories with breast cancer. And there's such great takeaway. The stories are so powerful. They're super inspiring. They're really informative in the sense of like, what can you do today to help a friend who's going through this? Or what can you do today to help yourself if you're going through this? Maybe tips you didn't know. You know, we've got sort of things I wish I knew. And it's so, it's just such a powerful um, episode filled with really great stories. Also, I feel like when people think about breast cancer, they just think about the statistics that, you know, they know that sometime in their life they might be diagnosed or they'll know someone. Well, the, the, the stat is one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And if you have familial risk, if your mom, your sister, your daughter has been diagnosed, there's a huge chance that you will have breast cancer. So this is something that we want to talk about. We have such powerful stories. We even had a chance to talk to an expert even. Yes, we have a breast radiologist who's going to guide us through what a self-examination should look like, when the best time to perform one is, and also just some really great takeaways in addition to supplement all of these powerful stories. But basically just to give you guys a real good idea of what it's like to come through something like this, if someone is going through it, if you're going through it, how you guys can um, just supplement all that information for this month. There's definitely inspiration and tons of takeaways to be had. And also I found some really awesome organizations and charities that are doing some great work to bring awareness, to provide education for breast cancer. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. Yeah, this is, it's a really important one. And we really ask that if, while you're listening to this, if you find any information that feels exciting or new or different to you, to please screenshot your phone, post it on your social media or text it to a friend, maybe someone else who you think could be um, impacted by this information. And, you know, support the podcast in any way that you can so that more people can hear these because these stories are beautiful. So we're going to get into the first story that we have today. The first one we're talking, uh, first person we're talking to is my sister. Um, You're going to hear more about her story in just a second. But my sister was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer when she was 29 years old. She is BRCA positive. um, So we'll talk a little bit about how she found all of that out, what I did for testing. Um, She is such a a badass. So I'm really excited. This uh, This is the first one. Let's do it. Hello. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited that we're going to talk about this because I feel like some of the details of your diagnosis and your experience are just so different and so interesting and nothing I would have ever known had I not been so closely connected to you. So can you just start off by kind of explaining when you got diagnosed, how you found out, and like how old you were? Of course. Um, so I was 29 years old when I kind of accidentally and by chance discovered my cancer. I was uh, laying in bed, it was at night, and I was watching a show and I was wearing this little like sports bra and it was um, uncomfortable and so I just sort of ever so slightly moved it to, to the right and my thumb grazed over this tiny little hard no larger than a 
tiny pea-sized lump that I'd never ever felt before, had never felt anything like it before. And, and in that moment, regular, I had... Were you doing regular breast exams at the time? No, this was like, no, I was 29 years old. Like this like breast cancer to me felt like a older person's thing, like later in life, get checked for that kind of thing. Like it just didn't, it wasn't anywhere on my radar at this age at all. Um, so it, when no, I, I cut you off, you were saying you moved. No, I was just going to yeah, in that moment, I had almost the most polarizing opposite, like total polar opposite feelings. I had both. There's no way this is what I think it is. This is just like some cyst or I don't know, something. I don't know. And all at the same time, I felt that that stomach dropping heart out of your body sort of oh my God, this is bad. Like I had all of that in the same exact moment. And I decided to let the fear and the the stomach dropping uh, be what drove me for the next, you know, few days. And I let that fear kind of, that gut instinct take over. And thank goodness I did. I think it's so interesting because there's so many people who, when they have that moment or they get that little thing that like, I have a feeling this isn't good, it's so much easier to live in not knowing because if you don't know, then you don't have it. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's exactly. So it's so and even, yeah. I mean, in that moment I could have convinced myself it was a million other things. I mean, based on my age, there's no way this should have been breast cancer based on my family history. There's no way this could have been breast cancer. There was just no indicators. Um, you know, I had already had two of my children. I had breastfed them both. Like all these things that you hear, you know, sort of help prevent breast cancer. I mean, so it really, I easily could have walked away from this and been like, it's nothing, relax, but I didn't. And so what, what I did was, well, and thank goodness my husband is so, um, he's so, it's hard to describe, but like when he, when he's afraid too, he just won't take no for an answer. And so when I called to make an appointment to be examined, they said, oh, we'll just see you at your next, um, wellness check, like your next gynecological appointment, we'll do an exam for you. And I was like about to sort of accept that and take almost comfort in the fact that they weren't alarmed. Yeah. And he was like, no, you're like, we're, you're going to see us this week. And so he was really my, my rock and my advocate. And he got me in um, the next day into an, a women's imaging center and they did an ultrasound that was just sort of like the first level of checking it. And they can kind of quickly rule out or, or determine whether I need further testing. And so the moment they put it on where I pointed, I could tell by her face that it was just, it wasn't good. And it was, um, she, she wasn't letting on a lot because she's not allowed to, but it was enough that I could tell she wasn't going to say like, you're good, you know, see you later and send me out the door. Yeah. And so she said, okay, we're going to need to do a mammogram. And so they kind of keep moving you down this hallway and like one pink robe into another closet and change. And they keep moving you down. And I did the mammogram and, and Doug, my husband kind of came in to check on me. And again, he has no boundaries and doesn't follow any rules. And he saw the technician and he like pulled her 
into an empty office and he was like, just give it to me straight. What do you think? What do you think this is? And she said, I'm pretty sure it's breast cancer. And he didn't tell me right away, of course, but I did the mammogram and then they said, we need to do a core needle biopsy. And I'd never, never been through anything like that. Didn't really know what to expect, but they lay me down and it was actually a little, a little bit more intrusive and kind of painful than I had anticipated, but they did the biopsies and I don't know. I went home with such a range of emotions. Like I don't, I don't think I thought it was actually going to be breast cancer. Like I was worried, but I thought I'd go through the motions and then I'd be told it was a benign cyst or you have, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, dense breasts or it's a, a something left over from breastfeeding or I don't know. Um, so I was in sort of a state of shock and kind of numb and, and then the waiting game kicks in and that's, that's really just the worst part of this whole entire process is just the waiting. And um, if I can give any advice, it'd be don't ever get like a scan or something on a Thursday or Friday because oh my gosh, I went through that so many, I went through that so many times where like I'd go in on a Thursday. I mean, over the course of these last seven years, I know how to schedule my appointments now, but so that I don't ever have to be miserable over a weekend and ruin my life on a Saturday and Sunday, because it really can take you, it can take over your emotions. And so I only do things on Mondays and Tuesdays now, and I've learned my lesson. But yeah, it was a Thursday, and so I had to wait over the weekend. And then on a Monday, they called, and I'll never forget the details of like the exact outfit I was wearing. It was raining outside. I just got out of a board meeting. It was like 3:20 in the afternoon, and this call came in from the imaging center. And I, I went into a private room again, like sort of expecting them to say like you're okay. It's not what we thought. And you're all clear. And of course they didn't. They said, so sorry to tell you, but it's triple negative, uh, aggressive uh, breast cancer. And I just started, I was, I mean, I was shaking. My hands were shaking. I was at work and I called Doug right away. And I said, Doug, we need to get in the car and drive to my parents' house. And we happened to be having a family dinner that night. And I, you know, we rushed over. I was just in total shock and completely silent the whole drive over. And, um, you know, he was, of course, amazing and was like, like, I got you. We're going to figure this out. We're going to get all the right doctors. And, you know, of course, he was battling his own fears. And but he stayed really strong for me. I mean, I remember, so there's some details I remember, but I just want to ask for people that don't, that don't know, because I still feel confused by it. What exactly is triple negative breast cancer and what does it mean? Like, how is it different from others? What does that prognosis mean? So yeah, triple negative. And I, I apologize in advance if I don't describe it like the way a doctor would, but to the best of my understanding, it's it's that it is negative. Yeah. It's, it does. My cancer wasn't fueled by the three main hormones that cause cancer. So it's like progesterone, testosterone, and one other one. So yeah. And so it's triple negative. So it's, it's bad because it doesn't respond to most treatments. You can't take like, for example, women who find out they have breast cancer often will take a drug called tamoxifen and that helps reduce the risk of breast cancer. So like I couldn't, I can't take any of these drugs that help reduce the risk of breast cancer coming back or even the, the general medicines they used to treat um, hormone positive cancers. So I had triple negative. So it's, it's bad in that way. It's an aggressive, fast moving cancer. Thank goodness 
I reacted so quickly when I found it and we, we got in right away. And from the time I was diagnosed to the time I was in chemo was like 11 or 12 days. I mean, I mean that's it, something it, that I'll never forget. And I know that was so Doug because he was so on it and he was really every, yes. every person he knew, every relationship he possibly had. There was no, I mean, when you say he right. has no, you know, boundaries, it's like it was in the best of ways that, right. you know, it was the best doctors, people who take years to get in. I remember you guys being able to get in and yeah. talk to. And how did you, um, yeah. I mean, there's so much I want to ask, but I want to keep it sort of focused on the most helpful things right now. So when you actually started going through treatment, you had to have, uh, you first did all your chemo, correct? Mm -hmm. Then you did your radiation. Correct. Okay. So during- I did my chemo I did my chemo first, which is, you know, really not the, the norm. Um, normally you start with a double mastectomy, but just to rewind one second, just because it is important to those listening, because I was diagnosed so young um, and had no fam real strong family history, they, they, you know, insisted, and I'm so glad they did, that I get tested for the BRCA gene, which came back positive, the BRCA1 gene. And so the combination of triple negative and the BRCA gene mutation um, is what set the course for my treatment and the order in which my treatment, you know, came to be with chemo coming first. Normally you don't do chemo first. Right. Right. Cause I remember, so I went and got tested and mine came back negative for the BRCA gene. Right. We don't even know. I mean, I feel like we've tried to figure that out and where does it go and who has it, but you know, it's, yeah, we, it either has to come from mom, mom or Abba and our mom and dad or um and so my mom mom went and got tested of course and hers came back positive like mine yeah. so you know we know at least where it came from yeah um so so when you were doing chemo um i want to talk about the cold caps but before i do that was there anything during the process while you were doing chemo that people like that you wish that you had asked for from friends or that when people tried to help that it actually like that it was actually harder even though they had the best of intentions i know everyone is unique and what everyone needs is unique yes but i think it would be really helpful yes. to know like in that moment what did you really need from everybody or what did you want from everybody yeah so what i what i really what I, it's sort of in hindsight, because I wasn't really good about knowing in the moment. And I think that the piece of me trying to maintain normalcy and trying to people please, which is a, you know, a, a piece of me that um, can be good and bad sometimes. I think, you know, a lot of pe people wanted to come visit and sit with me in chemo and show up for me in that way. And it's so well-intentioned, but I think for me, it was really hard because I felt like I had to be on because they were there to see me and be with me. And all I wanted to do was like sleep the day away and like avoid the day kind of. And so it was really hard for me to be on and engage when I just sort of wanted to like check out and get through this day, you know, with nobody looking at me. Yeah. Um, Food at the door, I would say, is like the most selfless kind act you can do. Like, again, a lot of people wanted to come and bring food. And then it's sort of that awkward exchange at the door where you're like, oh, do you want to come in? And like, it's rude not to invite them in. And like, but I'm really not in the mood. And then I look like crap. And I just got out of chemo. And I, you know, again, I just sort of want to like hibernate. So like just leaving food at the door um, and thinking about if you're someone going through cancer and you have children, like, 
thinking about how you can help the mom who's probably thinking about her kids, you know, like what you can do to help, like just get dinner for there for the kids or, you know, pick up the kids and take them for a play date or, you know, stuff like that to help, to help the parent in that way is, is super helpful. That's so great. That's such good advice. I mean, because I remember that going and sitting with you and it was like, you know, it felt like the only place to be was to be there with you because yeah. like, everyone feels so helpless that it's like, well, just like you're saying, like, well, I'm showing up for you. Like, I'm here. We're here. But then, yeah, you had to be like, you had to be like almost like a good host in your chemo chair. Yeah, <laughs> that's a Exactly right. And I think if you if you can be that if you want to be that friend that shows up, at least for me, I think it would have been like if you just show up and be like, I'm here. I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want you to look at me. I just want to sit here next to you. And like, yeah, just you do you and I'm going to do me. It. I just want to be here next to you and like the, and like set that precedent right when you as the friend arrive for your friend in chemo like and again, this is so personal to me, like your friend could be, or whoever you know going through it could be so different, yeah. but like, that's what I could have used. But I totally get that. Cause I think it's, I mean, it's so not the same, but there's similarities like when you just have a baby and like everyone wants to come in yeah. and sometimes you're like, they yeah. slept, this was my 20 minutes to sleep, but I can't sleep cause you came over and like, Right. So post, and like it's not nearly as gnarly as chemo, but right. it's that same idea that I think moms can understand you know, that just sort of well-intentioned, but slightly inconvenientness of it all. Um, yeah. And yeah. There... And I do think also a nice, like a gesture for once in a while for the, for the husband and the dad going through it, you know, he's sort of the forgotten um, partner in all of this because all of the focus is sort of on the one going through the cancer, which the majority of it should be. But, you know, I just remember there being times where Doug was just like, you know, I'd catch him in the, on the living room couch, like in the fetal position, not thinking anyone was around. And he was like really suffering and really scared and trying so hard to keep it all together and not show, you know, so it just, whether it's just like uh, someone taking the husband out for a night out to dinner and, you know, a movie to get his mind off it, or I don't know, just yeah. they're a part of it too. Yeah, yeah, they're a part, and interesting too, because in this particular situation, you know, Doug had a history of it with his mom, and so there were all sorts yeah. of, I'm sure, layers and layers of fear baked into, oh, yeah. you know, that came long before, you know. Yeah, he was very triggered by it, yeah. There was something that you did um, called cold caps, and I had never yeah. heard of it before you did it, and I was talking to the girls about it, and they had never heard of it either, and so I'd love you to explain it, because... I think from my perspective that it was one of the most pivotal things in the way you ended up handling yourself through the entire process, which really almost seemed like you were never sick. And I know that was not the case, but you handled it in such a, an insane way of just going, going, going. And I felt like this, the cold caps, at least in my mind, were one of those things. Can you explain it? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it played a huge, huge role in my treatment, my recovery, everything really. So um, when I was about to start chemo, my oncologist, Philomena McAndrews, said to me, um, I have this treatment available that's like wildly popular in Europe. It's starting to make its way over here. Um, it's not 100% guaranteed success, but I've seen wonderful results with it. And I think it's something you should consider. Um, and so it's called, it was at the time I used the company called Penguin Cold Caps and they send you 14 
uh, they look like basically like helmets, um, kind of like that mushy, icy, like an ice pack you put on like you're, when you've injured yourself. They look um, like but shaped. old school, like 1950s football padded helmets, but like yes. made of an ice pack. Exactly. Made out of an ice pack. And they send it to you. And I was fortunate enough to have um, a doctor and an oncology ward that that allowed me to store them in their like industrial grade gnarly freezers. Otherwise, you have to like freeze them. You have to buy your own freezer. You have to bring them on dry ice. Like it's it's really a big to do. And so I'm so lucky that I had a built in infrastructure to just store them at my oncologist's office. Um, and so what happens is, let's say your chemo day is 10 hours, uh, meaning you're actually like getting the chemo put into your body for, you know, for a length of 10 hours. You have to go two hours before and stay two hours longer and you arrive and you pre-freeze your head basically. And so they take this helmet. Uh, my mom was, my mom and you, Orly, um, and some of my other family members would come and assist and you attach this ice helmet to your head. It is negative, I think it was like negative 14 degrees. Yeah, I can't um, Yeah, you had to use like a thermometer each time to make sure each cap was the right temperature before you put it on my head. And you put it on as tightly as you can. And then you take a strap and like tighten it around the helmet to make sure it's really on as tight as you can. And that as much ice and as much cold is penetrating as much of your scalp as possible. And you keep each cap on for 30 minutes. And those first few minutes are tough, like where your, your natural temperature is coming down to this, you know, this really chilly temperature. Um, and it's hard the first few minutes, I'm not going to lie, but it's, but, but you get used to it. And you, ha I had like a heated blanket around my whole body to sort of like balance everything out. And, and can you what you get out of this. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say what, what, the yeah, what you get. Yeah. The reason you go through this and what you gain out of this is you, you keep your hair. I mean, I, I maybe lost like 10% of my hair and I lost it in places only that the cold cap couldn't strongly penetrate. So like the sideburn area, like by your ears and like right at the bottom of the nape of my neck and the lower back part, like those were the only two places I couldn't really get cold enough with the cap. And so my hair remained and I had the kind of chemo that they said would have made me completely bald within two weeks. And I know that that's true because I lost every single hair on the rest of my body. I'm talking eyebrows. I'm talking like everywhere. I did not have a single hair follicle on my body except for my head. And I think what was so powerful about it was that when you would look, you know, for you, I would imagine, although, you know, who knows, but when you would look in the mirror, it's like you saw a reflection back of yourself, not a sick you. So it was almost like exactly able to find and, and nobody treat. Yeah. I mean, and you're not going through the world looking like a sick person and therefore treated like a sick person. You don't have that big C yeah. for cancer, like on your head all day where people look at you with sad eyes or like, Oh, that poor lady. Like, and, and by not being treated that way, you in a way don't feel that way about yourself. Yeah. And then you can just really carry yourself with your shoulders back, your head high strength and grace as as much as you possibly can and that that played a huge huge role 
in that for me. I'll never, no forget, question. I'll never forget that. I think it was, and I know it was not easy um, or convenient or fun or anything, but I think that's one of the things that I feel like is such a big takeaway that if, if no one has heard about, I hope that they look up, you know, look into it a little bit more and share it with a friend yeah. going through it. You know, I know every type of cancer and chemo is different and some chemo, you won't lose your hair and, you know, so it's not an issue. Yeah. I think it's a really, really powerful tool where you can take back some control when you feel like you have no control. Yeah. Exactly. No, I'm so, I've absolutely no regrets. I'm so glad that I did it. And if, and, and if you choose, if you can try to look at, you know, the positive side of things and glass half full, like another perk was just that it made the day go by so quickly because you had to change the cap every half hour. So it was like these <laughs> half hour increments were coming so quickly. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I look down and like the caps are done and I'm like, oh, we're done for the day. Let's, and I got to go home, you know, it just, it yeah. kind of gave the day a pace and it helped it go by faster. Oh, well, the last thing I want to ask is just, and you don't even have to have an answer for this if you don't have one, but is there anything that you wish you knew before? Um, you know, I know sometimes ignorance is bliss and it's harder if you know in advance, but was there anything that you wish you did know before that you would share with someone potentially either entering into this process for the first time or someone having a friend that is, that's worth sharing? Yeah, I think two things. I think we're all a lot stronger than we think we are. And I think when you think about this and like, oh my God, I couldn't, I had so many people say like, I could never go through that. I could never do it the way you did it. I could never. And I just, if you were to have asked me if I could have, I probably would have said the same thing. And when you're in it, you're just, you're just in it and you pull from some reserve you didn't know you had. And, and you put one foot in front of the other and and you just do get through it. And the fear of the unknown is always worse than what's actually happening. Um, and I think the other thing for me is that I didn't see coming and that I did not expect was how afraid I'd feel so many years past diagnosis and past treatment. So I hit this like five year, they call it cancerversary. And it's, you know, it's like when you, when you pass five years and it hasn't come back, it's like a huge milestone for cancer survivors. And your chance of it coming back is, is so reduced once you pass that five year mark. And I felt completely the opposite of what I thought I'd feel. I thought I'd feel enormous relief. Like it was way in my rear view mirror, like, oh, that, that chapter long ago. And what I felt instead was, completely vulnerable, scared it was regrowing. I felt further away from the treatment, my treatment team, the actual treatment, the medicine. There's something very comforting about being in it. Like when you're in chemo, you know nothing's growing because like you're in chemo. You're constantly having scans. Your doctors are all over you. You're having blood tests that detect whether cancer is growing. Like you are so monitored and there's an an incredible comfort in that, or at least there was for me. And so now that I'm five years out, no, now I'm sorry, now seven years out, I feel, I felt vulnerable, not monitored enough and like always worried it was regrowing. And I've had to do a lot of work around that, a lot of therapy, a lot of, a lot. Um, but, and that was something no one told me, uh, no one talked about. And so that's the one thing I would say I wasn't expecting. Yeah, and I think the value in that is for people to know that if they're if they're having those feelings, like that it's worthwhile to be proactive, just like you were with your own cancer, and be proactive with your mind 
and be proactive with your well-being yes. and do like figure out the person to talk to, whether that's a therapist, whether that's a support group, whether that's a group of women on a Wednesday night or whatever it is to like, yeah, I think to validate it, to hear it. Cause it's like, I never thought about it until you mentioned it. And again, right. such a bizarre analogy, but like, I remember when I found out I was pregnant with Connor and it's like, you're not getting ultrasounds like ever. And you're just kind of like, yeah. is still growing? Like, I don't have a bump. I don't feel yeah, like exactly. it's still all in your body. You're like, I hope it's still working. I have no idea. So, yeah. Uh, so, and I, one I, tip I'll give, like, and again, every person's different, but for me, like, and Doug really helped me with this. Like he would just remind me of the hard, cold facts. And he would remind me like, you had an MRI like 90 days ago, Avia. Nothing. They would have caught it if something was in there. Your risk of recurrence now with all the treatment that you did and now that you're at seven years is only 2%. Like he has to like remind me of these simple facts. And it's just amazing because I lose sight of them when I'm in my fear spiral. Like I can't, I can't remember simple facts like that. And so now I have a notepad in my phone and they're all written down. And when I feel myself start to slip and get afraid, um, I reread my facts and it like, it takes me off the ledge. Oh, I and I'm love like, that. I can, I can like recenter myself because I really forget all of the, like the, the facts that tell me I'm okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is such good. Um, this is such good advice. I feel like this is really like useful tools that either for people going through it or for people who have friends that they can feel a little bit more like empowered. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good. Of course. Thank you for having me. I love you. You know, I think the most interesting thing from, I mean, the entire story of, of your sisters is, yeah, Incredible. incredible but I think the part that really struck with me was she almost talks about having like PTSD after cancer and totally. it's something that I don't think you think about ever um, even someone that's supported someone that has cancer it's like they go through this yeah. ridiculously tough time in their life and then they come through it and like your sister she even forgot that she had been in remission for over seven years now yeah. well it's interesting because everyone calls you know breast cancer survivors warriors and mm. you've done it but for them, it's nothing. It's not yeah. over. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's never over. over. They constantly feel like um, it could possibly come back and just living with that that stress and that anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't think about it. You just think of, okay, so you beat cancer, you did the thing. Right, you did now it. You Congratulations. No, but, that's but not it at all. When you deal with the fact that you didn't know it was growing in your body to begin with, how do you know it's not growing in your body again? That thought process I never thought of until I realized how overwhelming it's been for her. So it's just interesting to know that even when you have a friend who's gone through it, that continued support in this thing in their life and continuing to be there to talk to them about it. So they have a space because no one's asking about it anymore. They're done. You know, yeah. well, I mean, it actually brings up really well. It segues into my interview with one of my dear friends, Parl. So Mani, who um, is actually in five years remission right now as well, but she actually parallels being pregnant with having cancer. So let's get into that because it's really interesting. Ooh, okay. Today I get to sit down and interview one of my dearest friends, Parl Somani. Parl and I have known each other for over 12 years. We both have two children and they're around the same age. And her youngest daughter, Mira, is only two weeks apart from my youngest, Mila. Going through those times together and uh, chapters of our lives are really amazing. But for Parl, it was a very pivotal moment. This was June 2014. 
that's when she found out that she had breast cancer. So Parl, I'm going to let you take it away and tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I was actually at a 38 week ultrasound appointment uh, for my baby when I felt a lump and was told that it's likely nothing to worry about because I was only 31 years old at the time. And since I was pregnant, uh, the doctors thought it was likely just a clogged milk duct. Uh, but I had a couple years prior gotten genetic testing done and so knew that I carried a mutation in the BRCA1 gene, which at that time, no one really knew what that was. And it later became known as the Angelina Jolie gene. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, I had learned at that time that I have a very high risk for breast cancer. And so my husband and I were the ones who actually insisted on an ultrasound and biopsy of the lump. And it all ended up being a very crazy time because two days after I felt the lump, my water broke two weeks early and I went in for my C-section and my daughter ended up actually having complications after birth and so was in the NICU. And so there were a number of factors that would have made it very easy for us to just dismiss the lump as being anything to worry about and really focusing on everything else. Um, but fortunately, we did seek out an opinion on it. My husband wheeled me from the NICU to the breast clinic for a biopsy. And even then I was actually told it's nothing to worry about. But then wow. on my daughter's one week birthday, I received the call saying the lump is malignant after all. I mean, I've heard this story before. I, it still gives me goosebumps because it's one of those things that it's weird how even professionals are sometimes like, no, 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 don't worry. It's not anything we, sh you know, you don't need to worry about. It. And it's like you yourself and your husband are the ones that were like this, there's, there's just something in your, in you that was like, this has to get checked out. It, and it's crazy when you actually peel back the onion on my life story, but in the past five years from identifying you know, my own cancer and really honestly saving my life through that process, because you know, when, after the milk came in, after the delivery, I actually couldn't feel the lump anymore. You know, if I had waited for a year until after I stopped nursing and gotten it examined at that time, my prognosis would have been completely different. Did you say that's because of the genetic testing? So I was the first person in my family to get uh, genetic testing done. And I was honestly just fortunate to have an OBGYN who was familiar enough with it to actually recommend it. And it's unfortunate that a lot of families, even with a family history of breast or ovarian cancer are not getting access to this testing. And often people who don't have the family history should be getting the testing done as well anyways. Um, but knowing that information definitely was like through the knowledge is power type situation. So we all carry what's called a BRCA gene and um, there could be, um, there's BRCA1 and there's BRCA2. And some of us carry mutations or changes in those genes that then increase our risk for cancer. And uh, sp specifically, uh, it's you know breast and ovarian cancer for the BRCA1 gene that are much higher risk. So the average woman has a 12% chance of getting breast cancer in her lifetime. And if you have a mutation in your BRCA1 gene like I did, that risk is over 80%. And that's what yours was, right? Yours was and over that, 80%. That's what mine was. What kind of breast cancer did you have? I was diagnosed with stage two triple negative breast cancer, uh, which is one of the you know highest grades or most aggressive breast cancers that there are. 
when you found out that you had that, when you got that call, you know, a week after Mira is born, what's going through your head? It was really interesting because I think I immediately went into warrior mode a bit. I was actually just very matter of fact on the phone listening to what she was saying, asking, okay, what is it that we're going to do about it? And it was actually only when she mentioned, and obviously you're going to need to stop breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. that I actually started crying because that had been an incredibly difficult journey for me with my first daughter. And so I had made a lot of effort, even when my baby was in the NICU and I was still moving around in a wheelchair uh, to have the nursing be successful with my second. And so that was actually incredibly hard to hear. Um, but yes, there were a a number of, of emotions at the time. And of course, as soon as I got off the phone, I just started bawling. We were basically going through, you know, second childbirth at the same time, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we got the call of everything happening, I'm in my own head, sitting there bawling because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm here and I had this baby and I am able to do the normal, the, you know, quote unquote, normal things that you do post childbirth and you're dealing with breast cancer. That's what came to my head. I was like, what a warrior you are. You just went in there and took care of business. I mean, it's amazing to think about. And also someone who's kind of parallel to you, which is like, you know, we both have kids, we're doing this and already having kids is, and your second kid at that is like Mm -hmm. insanely crazy. You know, you're going through so many things, hormones, emotions, life changes. And then on top of that, you have this, this beast that just falls on you. Nursing is such a personal experience too, and journey for women, if you choose to do it, if you choose not to do it. And so I can imagine how that moment was something that was very like, oh my gosh, defeating for you. How did your husband react and and your family? So that was definitely one of the hardest parts of uh, the the initial diagnosis, honestly, was uh, was having that conversation. Um, I mean, obviously, there were a number of uncertainties and, and other things that were difficult. But I actually had gotten the call on Father's Day weekend. And so it was just my mom and I that were at home with Mira, um, the newborn. And Ash and my father had, uh, you know, taken my my older daughter out for Father's Day. And, and I was lucky that my parents were staying with me at the time because they had come to help with the newborn. And so when I got the call, it was just my mom and me uh, that, that first heard. And so when my husband came home, I needed to tell him. And that was incredibly difficult because I was diagnosed when I was 31 years old and his birth mother had actually passed away at 31 years old from breast cancer. So while when I had received the information and the diagnosis, I was able to go directly into, okay, we're going to handle this and what is it we need to do about it? Whereas his instinctual reaction was much more worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And the word, first words out of his mouth as he began crying was, I can't do this without you. Oh, oh my God. It made me cry. And was, yeah. where was, um, where was Dia? Dia is their older daughter. So Paro's oldest daughter, where was she? You know, Dia was about a little over two and a half years old at this time. And I think I was, 
uh, fortunate from the perspective that she was too young to fully understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And there was never this like, momentous conversation that we had needed to have with her about the diagnosis. Um, at the same time, she was old enough to recognize that there is something going on. Mm-hmm. And if mommy can't lift her up for a month um, after a surgery or, you know, needs to rest um, because I'm not feeling well. And there clearly was a conversation because my hair (laughs) went away uh, during this time, Uh, you know, but it was, it was able to be a conversation around good cells and bad cells and the fight that's happening with my parents here, both the and Mira we're just surrounded with, with so much love and support. And, you know, my mom was the mother to Mira that I couldn't be in those early months. And that help was just priceless. That's something else that, you know, I, I often think about in relation to everything when it was happening was that with chemo and with the treatment that you were undergoing, your exposure to Mira um, and Dia was uh, was different because mm-hmm. of that. You you kind of had to be a little bit sequestered. That was one of the more emotionally difficult parts for me, is especially when it it came to Mira, just because I felt like I had, I, you know, I was there all the time for Dia after she was born, and to not to be able to do that and and be there in that same for Mira was was very difficult for me and. It was, you know, an emotion I've actually struggled with for, um, you know, even years later where she's very much a a daddy's girl. And I Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, um, can't prevent myself from wondering, is it because I just wasn't there as much when she was younger? When she knows the full story. I mean, she is, first of all, she is such a sweetheart. And and it's okay because I think Dia loves you so much. So it's okay for Ash to have. To have one of them favor him a little bit more, but she—I I, mean—it's going to be amazing to see and and have her really understand what was happening when she was so young and when she was born, and what a warrior her mom is. I can only imagine how emotional that time was, but I'm, I'm yeah so excited for you and her to you know have that bond when you guys when she gets older. And I mean, you mentioned the blog. I mean, one of my big reasons for writing the blog and and maintaining it real time while I was going through all of this treatment is because I wanted to document my journey and the experience for my daughters so that when they're older, they have this, you know, frankly, it's a, it's a book now. (laughs) I actually have two hard copies of this blog um, that's been printed and I have it saved uh, one for each of them so that as they're older and able to understand more, they will be able to more fully appreciate what those early years and were just like. For everyone listening to, we'll, we'll include this um, in our link for the podcast, but also can you just quickly tell us what the blog is? The URL is called Cancer at 31. It's called a New Job, New Baby, New Cancer wow. uh, because it was the journey of me being diagnosed with breast cancer as a you know young working mother. As far as your other family members and friends, is there something that mm-hmm. you wish your friends would have done that they did do that you appreciated so much? I feel so blessed by 
what all my friends and family stepped up to do um, for both me and the family during that time. There are a number of things from you know, cooking some healthy meals and bringing them over. And sometimes it's just dropping it off, ringing the doorbell and leaving because the energy might not be there for the full conversation and hosting, but just the gesture itself speaks volume. The most uh, above and beyond gesture was uh, I had secret champions uh-huh. and what that was. Um, and I think my friends just know me very well <laughs> because I've always loved puzzles and mysteries and playing detective and uh, what this one uh, one couple um, friends of ours did were essentially each week drop off a you know just complete surprise at the house. So um, it might be you know a, a puzzle type of thing to keep my mind occupied. Even experiences like well, they had signed up via for a my elder daughter for a library card Aww. and uh, you know drop that off and it was always signed you know love your secret champions. And it was so unexpected for me that I had people in my life that we had as a family, people in our life that were just willing to go so above and beyond. I've learned this with other people that I have encountered that have gone through hardships in their lives. And I think I learned this a lot from Viral, my husband, but he always says it's no matter how uncomfortable it is for you to, as the person that is trying to support a friend or a family member, you just got to do it. You you send that text, you send that message, and you call because 100%. even if they don't want it at that moment, and even if they don't call you back or text you back, they listen and they're they're mm-hmm. listening and they are they they get it. You know they're they're noticing all of that. And I just that 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 has always stuck with me. And it's one of those things like no matter what, even if you're like, no, 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 maybe they don't want to hear from you. Maybe they just want to be left alone. That might be the case. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I just feel like it's one of those things that you st- you do it because you want them to know that you're thinking of them. That's right. You just, you hundred percent do it. You, you don't ask, what can I do? <laughs> you yeah. actually just find something to do. And that outreach, it's, it, I, I mean, it, it means so much to the yeah. person whether or not you hear back from it or not. I think I maybe learned even how to be a better friend to others um, by realizing how people were, you know, being a friend to wow. me. Wow, that's powerful. And, yeah, it, I mean, it, it really gave me insight into how I can be there for other people. And in fact, even strangers, I literally had people I have never even met before who either were, you know, friends of friends or had had read the blog. And, uh, you know, sent me messages on Facebook, just sharing very deeply personal stories and how uh, they were inspired by what they read. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't they don't know me. They didn't have any sort of need to have to reach out to me. And the fact that they did and were willing to share so much meant so much to me and goes to show that whether you even know someone well or not if you're going to reach out to them to, you know, wish them the best and just send positive vibes, then that's always going to be welcome. Yeah. What was your treatment protocol? Having had the genetic testing um, was really important, not in only identifying my cancer, but actually in developing 
the most optimal treatment plan as well, because both the chemotherapy and uh, surgical recommendation would have actually been different had I not had a mutation in the BRCA1 gene. So, so knowing that was critical. Um, ultimately, I ended up having chemotherapy first, mm-hmm. and uh, I had you know ten rounds of chemotherapy. It was on a weekly basis, and that was then followed by four surgeries, um, which were overall a bilateral mastectomy and breast reconstruction. To have to go through all of that emotionally and physically, is there one thing that you think that you were the most scared about or that you kind of went through and then were like, that? I thought I was going to be the most scared about this, but it was actually this? So I think there were a lot of points along the way where I felt like I was still able to kind of take control of the situation. So when it comes to hair loss, for example, I didn't want it to just be another thing that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And so I chose to shave my head um, early on when that when the hair started falling out um, because it would have been much more painful to just watch it to slowly watch it. happen to me mm-hmm. um, as other things were. And so that actually, that, that day, you know, my kids were there, my parents were there, and, and it, it was actually a day that felt very empowering. And so I actually have positive memories related um, to that day and, you know, the realization that my head is not as dented as I thought it might be. <laughs> um, and I actually sported a bald head, uh, even in like public and family and yes and you can I say you rocked that you made a bald (laughs) head look freaking amazing Parl (laughs) you know I tried I I tried the whole wig thing and 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 for a lot of people it's the right um you know personal decision for them I wore a wig at one outing and I actually felt more self-conscious and inauthentic uh, wearing the wig than I did just sporting that this is my bald head and this is who I am today and I'm going to be proud of it. So it wasn't as much of of, of the hair loss portion, um, but what was fascinating to me is that over the course of the number of weeks that I had chemotherapy, um, the, the primary side effects were mostly fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nausea can be a significant side effect, but with, you know, additional medications that they can prescribe these days, those, the, the, the nausea, and, you know, I never threw up at any point because those symptoms can be very well managed now. Mm-hmm. And, and so in, in a, a very strange way, I never really felt sick um, during the course of, of chemo, like, I actually thought of myself as a healthy person who happens to have cancer. And it was actually only after my first surgery. So what happened is I was actually supposed to have 12 rounds of chemotherapy, but my immune system was so shot um, after the 10th round by the, you know, near the end of it that I didn't, I wasn't passing like the blood test results um, and like the white blood cell count that's needed in order to allow for chemotherapy. And so instead of doing further chemotherapy, they decided to move to surgery instead. And that surgery was meant to have been a bilateral mastectomy, you know, both sides done in one surgery. Uh, What happened the morning of that surgery was that uh, the labs indicated that 
my immune system still had not recovered enough to even go into surgery. And so there was actually some contention between my oncologist and the breast surgeon um, because the breast surgeon indicated that I should not have surgery at all that day, whereas the oncologist's belief was that, you know, I'm, I'm not doing chemotherapy and this tumor is too high grade to not operate. And so the compromise that was made is that they would operate that day, but only on the side that had cancer. What ended up happening is I had to have four blood transfusions during that surgery because of how much I bled. And I only later found out from my breast surgeon that that was the most she's ever seen someone bleed on the operating table. And so I didn't necessarily fully appreciate until much later just how much how dangerous that that was um um but it was when i woke up from that mastectomy it was probably the hardest time uh, because that is when i actually truly felt sick for the first time mm-hmm. i felt weak and i felt like i was recovering from something which i obviously was the strange part about that is that that was actually first time in this whole journey that I was now actually truly cancer free yeah. because now it was after the surgery that they had actually removed it. And what what was beneficial about doing chemotherapy first Mm -hmm. was that we were actually able to observe and monitor the tumor and see how it was responding to the chemotherapy. So by the time I had actually gone into surgery, there was belief based on the MRI results that the tumor had actually disappeared entirely from the chemo. You know, oftentimes people do surgery first mm-hmm. just to try to get it out and then do chemo to treat any floating cancer cells that may be elsewhere. And the challenge with that is, I mean, you're doing chemo and then you're really just kind of sitting there fingers crossed, hoping that the cancer doesn't recur. Right. But you, you don't have a tangible way of informing your prognosis because you don't actually know how your body responded to the chemo. Right. Was there anything during the process, like with chemo and with surgeries, was there anything that helped you personally cope and manage? Uh, you know, I, I think it's less about the things that you have, you know, there, there are things that can be helpful, fuzzy socks, fuzzy blankets, um, puzzles to really occupy your brain and, and combat chemo brain, which is a very real thing. I had one friend who actually uh, gave me a, a like a little knitting loom, and so I actually knitted myself a hat. <laughs> that Amazing. I also wore, uh, you know, so little projects like that that can keep your mind sharp and, and focused are very helpful. But I think the the most important uh, two things uh, that I felt helped in my coping and in my recovery and healing are one, my state of mind. I think positivity is a state of mind and having a very positive mindset on what is happening and how you're going to get through it and surrounding yourself with positivity and making the choices along the way that make you feel like you're in control Mm -hmm. and empowered are incredibly powerful, whether it's for someone going through a cancer treatment or some other hardship in life. But, you know, that, that positivity was for sure a coping mechanism and healing contributor. And the second was, was writing, you know, I had never started or maintained a blog prior to this and wasn't even necessarily really a, a writer, 
Um, but I realized a love for writing through documenting the blog ended up being therapeutic on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. It, one was an outlet for me to share what was going on with a wider audience without having to repeat it time and time again. And it was an opportunity for people who, you know, were hesitant to maybe reach out to check in every now, you know, every day or every week on how I'm doing, um, but wanted to know and, and were able to kind of keep track through the blog. But it was therapeutic because there are so many things that I was feeling during that time mm-hmm. and they weren't necessarily even related to the cancer treatment or the chemo necessarily. It was just perspectives on life. Um, I had one blog entry about the similarities between pregnancy and chemo and wow. how fascinating it is that some of the changes that the body is going through are, are so similar and yet in one situation, the body's creating life, and in the other situation, it's killing. The something. body's killing life. Yeah. Wow, that is such an interesting way of looking at it. My intention with the blog, like I mentioned, was one to document the journey for my girls, but then also for it to serve as a source of experience sharing and inspiration mm-hmm. for others who may be walking this same difficult path. Another part of it that was important to me to write the blog was I wanted to be very open with my experience because I think a lot of people are not. And, and part of it might be culturally that it's, you know, especially in the South Asian community, there's not necessarily a lot of open discussion around issues like this, you know, in the years since I've published it, the blog has now been read in over 80 countries. It's amazing. And I think it's really a testament how there are cultures and populations everywhere that desire experience sharing and desire inspiration. And I'm hoping that the blog serves as a resource for them. You were so raw and real. And it's something that I can't wait for your daughters to read because they'll see what a, you know, strong, strong woman you are, which leads me to ask you, how do you view yourself? Do you consider you a survivor or a fighter? I consider myself a warrior. I felt like I was in warrior mode when I was going through treatment and it was a battle that I was fighting collectively with family and friends. But I think in the years since then, I've continued to view myself as a warrior because I now want to fight to help inspire others and influence what the world will be like for my daughters and the risks health-wise that they may face as they're older. And so that word I identify with more because it also feels like a decision. The word survivor, while I'm sure I have used that to describe myself at at times, um, it in a way feels more like I've been victimized Mm -hmm. and it's something that's happened to me. And as a result, I am a survivor. Whereas choosing to be a warrior or a cancer warrior or just a warrior on any front is a decision that I am making. And that is a much more empowering way to live. Lastly, I just want to ask you any words of encouragement or of just anything that you wish someone might have told you prior to going into this? Yeah, you know, so I am approaching the five-year anniversary of my remission. And so I've actually reflected a lot on 
priorities and how I spend my time and what's important to me and, and what I want to make out of my life. And I think maintaining that positive state of mind and really making time for the important moments in life with family and friends, Mm -hmm. embracing the highs as they come and otherwise looking for the silver linings. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This is super powerful, empowering. So thank you for that. That was my honor. Thank you. And you guys, again, we are going to be listing everything you need to know about Parle and her journey and her fight against breast cancer um, in the description link along with her blog. So please check that out. And again, Parle, we love you and we're so excited for five years of being cancer-free and we wish you nothing but the best. I mean, we're all a little uh, overwhelmed by this one. I think there's a couple, there's so many things about what she's talking about. One of the most interesting things that I think I'm taking from it is when she talks about the desire in all other cultures and all other communities for more experience sharing. And if her blog is reaching over 80 countries and it's about this issue, you know that people want to hear more about it. They want to feel more related to it and feel stories that they can learn from and feel connected to. And thank God that she's like sharing it. I'm still just blown away by the fact that this is a testament to trusting your gut. Yeah. You know, she yeah. she felt a lump, but since she, you know, was familiar with a clogged milk duct, you know, she could have just thought, oh, that's it. And she says this. I mean, I just keep thinking right now, at 38 weeks pregnant, you're about to meet your baby. You're full term. Well, we and her actually were two weeks apart. So it was really? like, yeah, and I tell her all the oh time, like, gosh. I was crying so much. I was like, I felt like I was going through this with you. Mm-hmm. And I was, I sorry, know. guys, I can't talk properly when yeah. I cry. I'm just thinking about like nursing Sunny and just the fact that, yeah, you wouldn't have felt that lump and you would have just gone a whole year. Yeah. So our daughters are two weeks apart. And as she was, you know, as I'm going home and nursing and doing the normal mom Looking down at your baby because she's not doing that. She's in treatment. I'm so glad she listened to that gut feeling. And I think that's the thing we all have to listen to. You know, that was part of Avia's story that when she felt the lump that her doctor said, you know, we'll we'll see you at your next, you know, your next uh, wellness checkup. And I'm sure it's fine. You're only 29 and all this stuff. And that we really have to, we have to be, no matter how much you don't want the answer, we have to be really fucking proactive about our own health really proactive and get the answers regardless of what they are because at least then you're in control a little bit like you're saying i mean if she had waited if she had waited it would be a whole different story and advocating for yourself and advocating for your child and what you think is best for you and your family yeah oh man (sighs) no we have um so amazing sorry now i've um yeah gathered myself um (laughs) so and i was actually able to also sit down with another uh really close friend dr anjali malik she is a breast radiologist in dc and she now has some great just um expert tips and advice on how to do breast examinations and what we should be looking out for so let's listen to that All right, guys, so we have been listening to some amazingly powerful stories throughout this episode, and now we are going to get a expert point of view. So I am sitting down with Dr. Anjali Malik, and she is a breast imaging radiologist. And tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a breast imaging radiologist in D.C., so I detect and diagnose breast cancer by reading mammograms 
performing ultrasounds, reading MRIs, and then performing the biopsies to help diagnose the cancer. So I'm really excited to be on and answer the questions that you guys have. So we have had some amazingly powerful stories, personal anecdotes from women who have been diagnosed and have come through it. Um, and, you know, I think it just brings a lot of perspective. We know that we celebrate Breast Cancer Awareness Month and we, we have a lot of knowledge around it, but I think it's interesting when you get a little bit more personal with it. And so now we really want to get the professional expert point of view. So tell me, when do you actually get a breast exam? So that's a great question, and it differs based on how old you are. So the actual new recommendations by all the major medical societies is not breast examination or self-breast examination, but is actually breast self-awareness, meaning that no one expects you to diagnose your own breast cancer, but what we want you to do is to be aware of how your breasts feel, what they look like, so that you are able to differentiate when there is a change. So um, we recommend this starting for women in their 20s, once a month, mid-cycle, just have a general check-in, see what's going on. And for every woman, you'll have it yearly. So at your well woman exam with your gynecologist or with your primary care physician. And then, of course, when it goes on to screening, that's a totally separate um, issue. And that is recommended annually, starting at the age of 40 for average risk women. So that's something that we, I want to get into because I myself personally had to go in for a mammogram because I found a, a tiny lump and we just needed to make sure that it wasn't... Um, you know, something more serious, but I am, I'm under 40. And I remember when I went in for my mammogram, they were almost like trying to deter me a little bit to actually get it done because they didn't think it was something serious. But why do we wait until we're 40 to get a mammogram? So of course, everything in medicine and in science is uh, hopefully evidence-based and based on risk versus benefit. And studies have shown that um, breast cancer incidence starts increasing uh, in our our, um, fourth decade of life, so in the 40s, and increases as we age. So our top two risk factors for the development of breast cancer are actually being female and aging. While you do hear plenty of stories of women being diagnosed, um, unfortunately, in their 20s and 30s, the benefits of screening um, have not played out in that patient population. So Those women can be screened if they have something like a very strong family history, if they have a known genetic mutation or some other major risk factor. But otherwise, the average risk woman benefits from annual screening starting at 40. Should you fight for a mammogram if you're under 40 and have a family history? It it depends. So number one, um, back to the self-awareness, one component of that is knowing your family history. And knowing your family history can really impact the kind of screening you get and when it starts. So knowing your family history does not just include breast cancer history. It actually includes things like ovarian cancer history, colon cancer history, because that can impact um, and affect whether you are uh, someone who would be a candidate for genetic testing that would find something like the BRCA gene. If you are someone with a strong family history of breast cancer, you definitely should be having that dialogue with your um, doctor or your primary care provider as to whether earlier screening would be appropriate for you. What would you say are the statistics for the likelihood of you developing cancer or the chances of developing breast cancer if 
someone in your family has it or had it? That's a great question. So actually only five to 15% of breast cancers are um, familial or hereditary or related to a genetic mutation. So as that um, sort of indicates, majority of breast cancers are actually sporadic, meaning they are not related to a genetic mutation or in a woman with family history. So again, that points to the importance of screening every woman starting at the age of 40, and that if you do fall into that subset of women with family history, you want to be having that conversation with your doctor to determine your screening needs. Okay, interesting. And now I know BRCA gene is something that's become a little bit more popular or I think of topic. I I know I started learning about it when my girlfriend was diagnosed with it because of that. Um, What exactly does BRCA, BRCA mean? So BRCA is one of many genes called tumor suppressant suppressor genes that can affect our um, breast cancer risk. So for BRCA specifically, there's a type 1 and a type 2, but these are, again, just two of the many genes that can be related to increased breast cancer risk. The reason that they are more um, on topic, as you suggested, is people like Angelina Jolie. She um, was found to have BRCA, and she opted to have a double mastectomy. We actually, in the breast imaging and breast uh, care community, call that the Angelina Jolie effect. I read that, yeah. Because a lot of women, yeah, said, you know, I want to get a double mastectomy, and Um, while some of them may need it, it's actually more important for those who are at increased lifetime risk. So the BRCA gene, who might be at risk for it? Um, Women who have a strong family history of premenopausal breast cancer. So that's cancer that's diagnosed before the age of 50. Women who have a family history of uh, male breast cancer. So I'm looking at Beyonce right now, right? Um, if she was one of my besties, that's the first thing I would be telling her is, girl, you got to go get genetic testing. You have a family history of male breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Another one, and this is no joke, I emailed Michelle Obama after I read her Becoming book because Barack's mom had ovarian cancer, and any family history of ovarian cancer is an automatic alert that uh, you need to consider genetic testing. So Michelle did not email me back, but I just want you to know that I did send it. I fangirled a little bit also uh, in my email, um, but then separately just said that uh, that was something that she might want to consider for Malia and um, Sasha. I love it. And also, um, we do know that women uh, and men in the Ashkenazi, Jewish, and African-American populations are at increased risk for BRCA as well. For example, um, in the... Um, average population, one in 400 will develop um, or will be shown to have the BRCA gene, whereas one in 40 within the Ashkenazi Jewish population are found to have the genetic mutation. So, Interesting. Uh, you know, really important to be mindful of that. And again, part of self-awareness is knowing your family history. Yeah. So it's really important to have that communication. Now, what are the different types of breast cancer? What are some of the most popular ones we see or the most common ones? And are there ones that are easier to tackle? That's a great question. So breast cancer, as um, you might know or might not, is most often hormonally responsive and sensitive, which is part of why um, our top risk factor is being a female, because we have uh, estrogen and progesterone floating and pumping through our blood. So 
many breast cancers are what you might have heard of estrogen and progesterone receptor positive. So those are oftentimes more easily treatable because we have specific targets for them. There is something called a triple negative breast cancer. So um, some breast cancers have uh, ER or estrogen, PR or progesterone, and then another uh, chemical called HER2 new um, positivity. And again, that offers targets, whereas the triple negative breast cancers do not have those targets on the breast cancer itself. So it just affects the way that we treat it. Um, also, you know, you might hear words like DCIS, and you might hear terms like precancerous. So we know that we have milk ducts. That's what feeds our babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where majority of breast cancer start are within the milk ducts. So DCIS indicates that it's inside the milk duct and anything invasive just means that it's gone outside the milk duct. It I- does not mean spread. Um, spread is when we start referring to things like metastases, when we start talking about lymph nodes. So, uh, you know, that's one of the first questions I get when I diagnose someone with breast cancer is, you know, has it spread? And, uh, you know, I'm looking at mammograms first. So my first, my primary concern is where is it in the breast? Has it um, gone outside of the milk duct? And then we start tackling the issues of whether it has spread or not. Now, I want to actually talk a little bit about doing self breast examinations. I know this is a podcast, so it's something that's going to be a little bit more visually hard to see, but I would love to get an explanation from you. If, you know, a woman is in her twenties and she's starting to do it, what is a step-by-step tutorial? If you wouldn't mind giving us one that we could kind of take, take away with us. Uh, One thing to remember um, is that the breast that we think of um, actually extends beyond that. So What I like to tell my patients is that when you are doing a breast exam, you should be examining um, starting at the top, which is actually right under your collarbone or your clavicle, going all the way to below the uh, breast tissue, going all the way in the middle to what is referred to as the breastbone or the sternum, and then going all the way to the side up into the underarm region. That is what is really considered a comprehensive self-breast exam. And then the other thing is that it's best done with your arm up or when lying flat on the bed. So um, we want that skin to be as taut as possible so that we're really able to feel as deep as possible. Studies have shown that for women who are doing regular self-exams, they are able to detect much smaller masses um, and and than those who do it infrequently. And um, I find that it's best when it's performed mid-cycle. It's when the breasts are the least impacted by our circulating hormones. I was just going to ask that question because I know that, you know, sometimes when you're menstruating, you're a lot more tender. And so you're saying mid-cycle. So when you say mid-cycle, is that mid-cycle of when we're actually menstruating or mid-cycle of when between our periods? Great, great question. So no, that's between your cycles. So um, for those of us in the medical community, we call day one, your first day of menstruating or bleeding, that's your day one. And then your last day right before you start bleeding is the last day of your cycle. So you want to be uh, evaluating your breasts somewhere in the middle. 
And that's also something to be mindful of because, yes, as you referenced, um, our breasts can be more tender during different times. So if you are someone who's getting a mammogram, mid-cycle is also a great time to consider uh, getting your screening mammogram. Good to know. I'm sure as a healthcare professional, you probably get a lot of different patients that come in with some wacky myths or some, you know, things that they've heard or read about. Are there any myths around breast cancer that you want to dispel? Absolutely. So number one, deodorant does not cause breast cancer. There might be other reasons to go, you know, towards natural deodorants. I personally use a natural deodorant, but it's not because I'm worried that it will cause breast cancer. And then nothing having to do with your bra will cause breast cancer. So you want to wear underwire, great. You don't, great. You, you know, you like sports bras, also fine. Um, support them however you feel best, but nothing will affect, none of that will affect your breast cancer risk. Um, so those would be two uh, strong ones that I that I hear most often. Lastly, I just want to know, is there anything else? I know you are so passionate about what you do. You know, having this as your career is you're really giving back to your community and to the fellow women in your life. But is there anything else you want to add? The, the biggest thing when I'm educating and empowering women is just take charge of your health, know your risk, know your family history, and reduce your risk. And my top two ways for doing that are, um, you know, eliminating or reducing alcohol and maintaining a healthy weight. So I know, you know, uh, mamas need their glass of wine every now and then, but just sometimes consider switching to herbal tea or one of the fabulous mocktails that are available these days. And then maintaining a healthy weight uh, just always has an impact on everything in health, but uh, that also includes our breast cancer risk. I did not know that alcohol, it has a direct correlation. Much to, I think, you know, everyone's chagrin, um, the consumption of alcohol uh, has been shown to have a direct and cumulative meaning. There's no safe levels that have been demonstrated um, for breast cancer risk. So you know, everything in moderation. But yes, if you're looking for a way to have a huge impact on your health, that would be one of them. All right. Well, Dr. Anjali Malik, thank you so much for being with us today. And as she mentioned, she does have her Instagram page, which you guys can follow along and get some more information. It's always important to empower ourselves and educate ourselves. Thank you again for joining us and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for having me, Emmy. This is great. Oh my gosh, the deodorant thing? I know. That's so crazy, and I never even heard about alcohol being related to causing breast cancer. I think that's yeah. in moderation, everything, right? Like right. eating healthy and, and reducing um, alcohol intake. But yeah, I was surprised you saw me. You heard yeah. me follow up. Yeah, you're like, hold on, hold on. I'm going to need a little more info. <laughs> well, I, I use natural deodorant for other reasons, but now I kind of want to go back because Mr. A is like, you know, you've never smelled the same since you started. <laughs> Using natural. You just drop him some Dr. Malik and she'll set him straight. That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Wow. That was amazing. Just so many good tips. And I love the fact that you can feel even something like a simple detail, like, you know, that the mid-cycle is the best time. Because that's always a weird one for me. Like, you know, right before my period. Yeah. Like, I feel my boobs feel completely different. And then, and so you never know whether things are flaring up or whether that's normal. So I love the fact that we know when we should do it. So that we've got that consistent baseline every month. So you'll notice if there's a change because you're doing it at the same time every month. Exactly. Such good info. This was fantastic. Oh my gosh. All of these stories are so powerful. And I'm just so honored that we were all able to hear them. 
Um, and if you guys listen to my episode on Mommy Group where the girls interviewed me, you know that I worked for the Boys and Girls Club and that giving back is really important to me. So if you're listening to this episode and thinking, what can I do? Um, are there other ways to help? If you don't have a friend going through this, um, I wanted to offer some resources for you because there are tremendous ways you can be an active part of this conversation and make an impact. Uh, and so one way to help fight this devastating disease is to contribute to charities that focus on the research, prevention and treatment of breast cancer. So. Um, really quick, I wanted to give you this tip. The first thing you should do when considering donating is to check with a charity watchdog group that evaluate how well each of these organizations spends the money it receives oh, from the contributors, right? That's interesting. This is major because it's something that should be very important to you because you want to make sure that the money that you're giving is being used the right way, the best way. These are two of the biggest charity watchdogs that I use, so Charity Watch and Charity Navigator. So those websites evaluate the thousands of charities and nonprofit organizations. They look at their financial statements, tax reports, program expenses, and so forth. Um, so anytime you're donating to charities, even small charities, they're usually on there. And so that's kind of where I go to do my homework. That is so good too, because I feel like so many people always say, I don't know where my money's going. Yeah. Does my 25, does my $100 really matter? And this is a great reason to not have an excuse to donate. And there's so many different avenues of what you can help. So in terms of breast cancer, consider whether you want your money to go for research and finding a cure, support services for cancer patients, helping support families, or education and public awareness. So I pulled a few of the top ones for you guys. Uh, the first is Breast Cancer Research Foundation. They got an A-plus rating. Their mission is to prevent and cure breast cancer by advancing the world's most promising research. Uh, the second one is National Breast Cancer Coalition Fund. And by the way, when you go to these sites, you can see a plethora of ways you can give back, whether it's through a walk, a run, just donating money. Um, even if your company is interested in sponsoring one particular initiative, you can do that there. Um, going back, the second one is National Breast Cancer Coalition Fund. Their mission is to end breast cancer. They actually have set a deadline to know how to end breast cancer by next year. Wow. Uh, and then the, the third one that I found was Breast Cancer Prevention Partners. They used to be called the Breast Cancer Fund, and they work to prevent breast cancer by eliminating exposure to toxic chemicals and radiation linked to the disease. Um, so basically, those are, those are sites that you can check out. Um, Everything will be in show notes. Yeah, yeah, and they even, you know, you can look at other charities for other, you know, causes and so forth. Um, One thing I'd love to add just yeah. real quick, uh, with my interview with Pearl, which I kind of edited out just because it was getting really long, was um, she talks about genetic testing, and obviously mm -hmm. we talk about that throughout mm -hmm. our, all of our interviews. But one thing she mentioned, which I thought was really important, is there are so many different versions of genetic testing that are coming out now. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you just want to do your homework with that too to make sure that the ones that you go with are testing a plethora of yeah. different strains or chances of having cancer because she was saying some of them that are more gimmicky will come out and just test for one or two. Oh, that's so annoying. And really you want it to run the whole gamut of what could be out there. And so, this is not a plug, but you guys know Mr. A works for <laughs> the leading uh, genetic te testing company, NextGen, and they do this and they test for hundreds and hundreds of genetic disorders. So definitely always get a second opinion and talk to your doctors yeah, about yeah. that. Um, okay, so I wanted to keep things light because if you guys are you know still listening right now and you you know, have a whole box of Kleenex empty like us. <laughs> um, other ways that you can give back and support breast cancer awareness is by shopping for a cause. So instead of us girls going through our favorite products this week, I found some purchases with a purpose. Uh, it's a huge way to give back. Um, first up is this Ann Taylor scarf. It's labeled the Hope Scarf. So this was created to promote the gift of hope. It's adorned with these beautiful butterflies. I actually have a photo for the girls to look at. 
Actually, I'm not sure if I pulled it. Um, there's three of them that Ann Taylor Loft has. So um, this one's made of silk. You can wear it around your neck or tie it in your hair. I actually love using scarves for my tablescape, so you can just simply put them under your cake stands or platters. It really makes a dramatic statement. All of these scarves are $29.50. So cute. Uh, and 90% of your purchase goes towards the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. There's also a skinny one. It has these gorgeous um, blue and purple flowers. This one's called Strength. And I knew Orly was gonna say this, but I wanted to say, if you guys follow Orly <laughs> on Instagram or YouTube, she actually did this DIY video. Oh my God. Featuring the scarves that you tie around the heels. Oh yeah. So I think it's a really cute way. Yeah, and you would just need to buy two scarves, buy two matching scarves and you can. Yeah, so the one going. with the stars, I feel like is kind of the most like. And there's a million ways to wear. one. A million ways to wear scarves like this. I know sometimes like it feels like only certain people can get away with like the scarf around the neck or the scarf around and the I've head. And I see you do it in your hair. Ami. I do my hair all the time, but belts. I, I use them as belts too. Tying them around oh. a purse. Yeah, so that cute. just acts as like a little adornment on your purse, so you can sort of rock that. Hopefully, it's a conversation starter. You can suggest it to other friends. So there's a million great ways to to Isn't wear a cute? scarf. So adorable. Yeah, know. we're going to yeah. have all the links for these. Oh, I love the star one. It's like a white with a really soft pale pink edge and these little tiny like celestial looking uh, stars on it. It's beautiful. I just think it's a really good, I don't know, neutral compared to the other ones. So that's, that's my favorite. Um, next, I found this limited edition move sports bra, especially if you guys have older girls. This is from um, American Eagle or their Ari collection. It's 20 bucks. They collaborated with Bright Pink. That means that 100% of the profits from its sale go toward the nonprofit's mission to help detect and prevent breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, let me go through these other ones that I found. Uh, I know a lot of you mamas listening love your fawn diaper bag. They have an entire blush collection. So all of these bags. Oh, these are gorgeous. Yeah, there's the original, which is their diaper bag. They have the mini. They now have a weekender bag, but they have an entire bundle even oh, the, the fanny, fanny pack. pack and that price point the <laughs> price I'm points are fantastic like you're looking at the travel bundle for under what's like on sale for 260 that's amazing yeah it yeah. has all of them and then the little fanny packs only 54 dollars so uh i know you guys love that but 20 percent of all their blush products for the month of october are also going to benefit um that okay the other thing that i found if you guys are into jewelry kendra scott they're a great company as is. They always do stuff like this, but they have shopped for a good, an entire section for breast cancer awareness. And the item that I was attracted to is this pendant necklace in blush. It kind of has this like cotton candy look to it. It's like oh, yeah. pink it's with a little bit of blue. It has really cool facets. $60 and 20% benefits the BCRF research grant. So as I was looking through this, I started thinking about Christmas shopping because, right? It's kind of that time of the year. <laughs> um, swell bottle. I just have a couple of them. There's this pink Topaz Traveler Swell bottle. That's my favorite water bottle. It keeps uh, drinks cold for 24 hours. Legit. Beverages we hot have a for swell, 12 hours. We have a swell bottle that I give Connor as his um, water, water bottle at yeah. school. And the next morning when I get it, the ice is still in it. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. It's amazing. So one other thing also, Clinique, because you know I'm a makeup girl. Clinique yeah. is doing one for, um, they're doing Take the Day Off Challenge with their makeup remover. So they'll be donating $10 per bottle and up to oh. 250000 to the Breast Cancer Research Foundation um, by simply, if you take a picture with your Clinique product and post oh. it on Instagram. So Any Clinique product? Uh, I believe it's um, taking their makeup with their product. Yeah. I mean, I think it's this product possibly. Uh, oh, the take, take the, the day, day off, off makeup, makeup remover, remover product. Yes. Got it. But wow. still, I mean, take a picture of it. You know, I mean, you can go to the counter if you don't want to buy it. Take a picture of it. Do I it know. That. You're at least then, you know, you're doing it for a good well, actually, like your um, style. I thought of you because... 
Um, I'm not a lipstick person, as you guys might remember. Uh, but yeah, this made me think of you. So this is Bobbi Brown. She has this Proud to be Pink Lip Duo. So it's $24, $24 from the purchase price will benefit the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. These colors are gorgeous. It's kind of like a corally pink one and then more of like a muted mauve pink. Um, and so if you are into makeup, that's one. I've featured stasher bags. Sorry, I don't know if I'm going too fast for you guys. I'm no. getting so excited about all uh, of these no, we'll, ways we'll that we can all, give back. We'll, we'll have, have all, all of this. the yeah. links. We'll yeah. have the links. Uh, the stasher bags, those are those silicone storage bags that I use for snacks. They're absolutely amazing. I use them all the time, but they have um, a whole collection giving back for breast cancer. And then just a couple more that I found. Um, what was the last one? Let me go back. Here. While you're looking for that, Thrive Cosmetics is one. This is just as an add-on, but um, Thrive Cosmetics, it's Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E. So oh. Cosmetics. It was actually developed by That's a woman adorable. who lost her friend to cancer. Oh. Um, but this one goes, uh, I'm not sure if they do one uh, specifically for breast cancer awareness, but the whole idea is um, they give beauty year-round. So for every product you purchase, we donate to help communities um, thrive and so it can be for various causes but it's a beautiful brand oh, just year-round it's just that. a reminder of that so the last one actually if you are still into natural deodorant I've used this one before primally pure natural deodorant uh, they have these limited edition pink deodorants a hundred percent of the proceeds benefits lipstick angels so I think I rounded up about seven or eight for you guys be sure to check out the links because, as I mentioned, it's Christmas shopping, even you know if you're doing birthday shopping or whatever. Um, I really want to challenge everyone to make those gift purchases intentional. So when you're giving the gift, you can even share with the recipient the meaning behind what that present is going towards. And it just makes it even more special and meaningful. And again, those two websites, uh, the Charity Watchdog websites that I use all the time, um, Charity Navigator and Charity Watch. So helpful. Yeah. Learned so much from this episode. Right? Oh my gosh, that was so good. Really, really great. I love those tips. Those were, I think, spot on. Yeah, there's such good takeaway here from experts to the personal stories. It's just so interesting how like each person's story is so uniquely different yet somehow connected with this through line where there's consistencies amongst their experiences and the way that they all felt during that time and their families. It's just really beautiful and, and I'm so glad that we got to do this. I feel really connected to all of these stories and we hope that you guys do too. Well, I feel I feel like this is one of those things where, you know, these stories, you're forever changed. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like we just finished like having a sleepover with all of our best girlfriends and that's what Mommy Group is all about is connecting and like removing those masks and feeling like you can share your stories without judgment, uh, without anyone giving their opinions. And um, we're just so grateful that you guys are a part of this conversation. You are so engaged. Um, we've seen like tremendous growth on Instagram because you guys keep coming there to give us your feedback. So we really appreciate that. If you're not following us on Instagram, please do. It's at Mommy Group Pod. Um, and also be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review. We love reading them. We really love your support. Tell your friends, tell your mama friends, non-mama friends, everyone. Um, that might be interested in this podcast because we are growing with you guys too. And a five-star rating really does help the podcast move up in search results. So if you can get in there and do that for us, it really will help us show up to other people who don't even know that we exist. It really is a huge help, helps us grow. So we really appreciate um, all the commitment and the engagement. And listening every week, uh, we hope that this one meant as much to you as it did to us. Thanks, guys.